Joe Dante's Gremlins was the fourth biggest hit of 1984. Produced on an $11 million budget, it grossed $148 million domestically. Big money for 1984, and by the time the international grosses were tallied up, it broke $200 million worldwide. It was so big that they actually re-released it in theaters the next summer, and then it grossed another $79 million on home video. It went on to become a seminal movie and a Christmas classic, despite being released in July, although the film's dark nature, which included Phoebe Cates' now infamous blood-curdling story about her dad dying on Christmas Eve, plus all the violence, led to an appeal of the MPAA's PG rating, the second film from Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment to do so following Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, resulting in the creation of the PG-13. A rating that, for better or worse, now defines blockbusters. Of course, the studio wanted a sequel badly, but Joe Dante resisted. He had other movies in mind, but the trouble was none of them were hits. Explorers, despite introducing the world to Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix, was a noteworthy flop in 1985, while Inner Space, despite rave reviews and enthusiastic audience response, was only a modest hit. Finally, The Burbs opened a decent business, but fell short of being a blockbuster, so when Dante was approached yet again to do Gremlins 2, he was vulnerable and agreed, but there was a catch. For one thing, he'd have three times the budget of the first film, but most importantly, he had complete creative control, resulting in perhaps the most eccentric Hollywood sequel ever made. A movie that's both a follow-up to and a spoof of the original film, a move which arguably spelt box office doom, but earned it a place in the hearts of many horror fans. The story is a complicated one, so let's take a look at what the fuck happened to Gremlins 2, the new batch. Flashback to the summer of 1984 and Gremlins was a hit. Warner Brothers wanted a sequel now. The only problem, Joe Dante was uninterested as the story had a closed ending. The Gremlins were all killed and Gizmo goes back to his elderly owner, Mr. Wing, played by Key Luke. But after basically being stolen by Hoyt Axton's Rand Peltzer for his none-too-bright son, Billy, played by Zach Galligan, who basically causes the death of a good chunk of his hometown's population. But hey, he gets the girl, so it's okay, right? At any rate, Dante was done, but Warner Brothers was not, and they approached loads of people and brainstormed lots of wild ideas, like sending the gremlins to Las Vegas or Mars. Thankfully, cooler heads prevailed, maybe thanks in part to producer Steven Spielberg's continued involvement with Dante, with them teaming on the great inner space in 1987. As mentioned previously, Dante eventually agreed to do the film, but only after six long years had passed, a long time as far as sequels go, which Dante himself admitted later seriously impacted the film's commercial potential. No matter. Warner Brothers was all in on Gremlins 2, giving Dante the aforementioned complete creative control. The result of that is what Dante would later refer to as one of the most unconventional studio films ever made, and a movie he says he still prefers to the original, although I'd wager few fans agree, even if they do still love it. So Vegas and Mars were out, but you know who was in during the late 80s? None other than Donald Trump, who was dominating headlines along with mass media baron Ted Turner, who earned many in Hollywood's ire by colorizing classic Hollywood films before redeeming himself with Turner classic movies and by marrying Jane Fonda. Thus Dante, in his wacky, irreverent take on a sequel, decided to make Zach Galligan and Phoebe Cates' characters employees of a brash billionaire named Daniel Clamp, who was initially the villain, but wound up becoming kinda the hero. Why? 
The actor playing Camp, John Glover, was so damn likable that the character instead evolved into this boyish, good-natured character that, in a way, arguably elevated the film, as at that point, they didn't really need to have another villain. They had the Gremlins. The de facto human villain wound up being Clamps number two, played by Dante's favorite Robert Picardo, but even he's not really a villain, more of just a buffoon, and he also winds up in the amorous arms of the lone female gremlin in a weird scene. Meanwhile, Haviland Morris, who some people may remember from 16 Candles, had an important role as Billy's amorous boss, while Robert Prosky was around to steal scenes as an old-time horror movie host with dreams of being a Walter Cronkite-type journalist who runs around the building under siege, interviewing the gremlins in his Count Dracula costume. It's pretty great. Of course, Zach Galligan and Phoebe Cates were back, but loads of other characters, including Billy's folks, sat it out despite Hoyt Axton apparently arriving on set to film a scheduled scene that would have had him give Gizmo a wetsuit to keep from spawning so many damn gremlins. But alas, the script for Dante's taste was too jam-packed and the scene was cut. But Dante did find time to bring back the Futtermans, played by Roger Corman favorite Dick Miller and Jackie Joseph, despite them seemingly dying violently in the first film. In fact, Dick Miller arguably has more screen time than his higher-billed co-stars. But this time, how would Billy wind up in the possession of Gizmo? Now, Gizmo coincidentally becomes the guinea pig of some scientists at Clamp headquarters after his owner, Wing, dies. They're led by none other than Christopher Lee, who apparently felt quite bad about appearing in one of the many bad sequels to Joe Dante's The Howling, and actually apologized to him profusely on the first day of shooting. Luckily, Billy's able to rescue his little pal, but not before he gets wet. Oh shit. Obviously, the gremlins run amok, but here's where Dante really ran off the whales, with Rick Baker replacing Chris Wallace, who was busy making his directorial debut on the fly too. Apparently, Baker just egged Dante on to create more gremlins. More and more and more and more. Lots of them. Lots and lots and lots of gremlins. All kinds of gremlins. There was a smart gremlin who talked in the voice of the odd couple's Tony Randall doing a cheesy British impersonation. Talk a little bit about what's going on in this room, because I think there are some fascinating ramifications here for the future. A gremlin with fruit on its face, a vampire gremlin, an electricity gremlin, a phantom of the opera gremlin, and more, and more, and more, and more. But the fun didn't stop there. Dante also decided to break the fourth wall a few times, having Kate's poke fun at the crazy Christmas story from the first film by having her tell a story set on Lincoln's birthday that... Is it, I guess a story about her being flashed as a child? It's fucking weird. And then they have the gremlins attack Leonard Malton while he's giving a bad review to the original film on the Clamp TV station because somehow Gremlins the movie exists in Gremlins 2's universe even though the characters are still fictional and uh, I don't know, it hurts my head just to think of it. I guess it worked though because Leonard Malton, who hated the first film, gave this a pretty good review. I wonder why. And then halfway through the movie, the film just snaps, and we're in a movie theater. That's showing Gremlins to the new batch, and it's been taken over by Gremlins. But luckily, don't worry everyone, Hulk Hogan is around watching the movie and tells the guys to cut the shit. Apparently, they really wanted Clint Eastwood, but hey, kids love the Hulkster, right? Or at least they did back then before, you know, Gawker and racism and all that. On the VHS version, they used stock footage from John Wayne doing the same thing. What was going on? In fact, this was a gimmick lifted from William Castle's The Tingler, which was apropos, as Dante's next film, Matinee, would be an affectionate homage to the man. What was going on here? Apparently, that's what the studio thought anyway, with them expressing concern to Dante over the breaking of the fourth wall, 
Although it was something he was gung-ho about, being a reference to the old Bob Hope Bing Crosby Road pitches. I mean, hey, if it worked in 1942, why not 1990, right? Right? Not surprisingly, the film earned a PG-13, but in what had to be a big, boneheaded move, the movie starts with a short Looney Tunes cartoon that feels really long, featuring Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny fighting over who gets to ride the Warner Brothers logo. In a kid's movie, this would be fine, but this isn't really a kid's movie, is it? In a recent Gremlins 2 oral history by Consequence of Sound, which is definitely worth the read, Dante said it was his homage to the golden age of cinema where he used to get cartoons before the movies and that he felt it helped give the film an anarchic edge. Apparently the studio wasn't thrilled and the sequence originally went on much longer until they forced him to cut it to the bone and in hindsight it still feels like a big mistake because older kids in the audience probably tuned out thinking that this was a movie for babies. I remember seeing it when I was eight years old and thinking, oh no, this gremlin is a baby's movie with the Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. This isn't cool. I'm gonna go see Dick Tracy. Of course, the one positive was that Chuck Dones was lured out of retirement to do the animation, which was fine, but again, not right at all for this movie. Anyways, the film, predictably, was a huge flop. Originally, it was set to open in May, and a whole publicity campaign had been planned with the only competition being Bird on a Wire with Mel Gibson and Goldie Hawn, but I guess the studio was absolutely terrified of the red-hot star power at the time of Mel Gibson and Goldie Hawn, and decided to delay it so that it would open against the most hyped film of the year, Dick Tracy, starring Warren Beatty which was so big that for a while yellow fedoras were popular again. Later, Joe Dante actually said they did it to keep Dick Tracy from breaking Warner Brothers' opening weekend record for Batman. A penny wise, a pound foolish? Thus, the film got totally lost in the shuffle and was one of several underperforming sequels in the summer of 1990, including another 48 hours, Back to the Future Part 3, and Robocop 2, which may account for how poorly the film did, earning a disastrous $41 million at the box office and not even ranking in the top 30 movies of the year, for the sequel to what was one of the highest grossing movies of 1984. It was an absolute disaster, despite all the hype, which included some pretty heavy merchandising, including action figures, dolls, storybooks, tie-in novels, and more. People in 1990 just seemed to be sick of sequels, with only Die Hard 2 Die Harder making any serious coin. Heck, even Rocky V was a flop. At any rate, Gremlins 2 The New Batch did badly enough that it put the franchise on ice permanently, although every few years or so people talk about doing a sequel or reboot, the latter of which, sadly, seems more likely. In fact, people probably would have already done it had Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment not been the rights holder, with Spielberg famously devoted to protecting his films from the remake sequel treatment. Thank God. That said, perhaps a soft reboot sequel? Why not bring back Gizmo? I'm sure Howie Mandel, who voiced the character, is down. Looking back at the film now, it's easy to appreciate how different Dante was trying to make it, and while it's not scary like the first film, it is pretty funny. One of the best gags is how badass Gizmo gets in the sequel with him lifting weights and watching Rambo First Blood Part 2. He chooses John Rambo as his role model, and let me tell you folks, you could not choose a better role model than John Rambo. Thus, we get cute little Gizmo running around with a red bandana, shooting off a bow and arrow, and taking down gremlins. It's pretty adorable, and also kind of badass. But again, not even slightly scary. Apparently, they had to ask Sly's permission, which of course, he gave. Sure, do it. I mean, he had to be flattered, right? 
Notably, Jerry Goldsmith is back to score the sequel, and he even works in some of his Rambo motifs, making the whole Rambo spoof thing work pretty seamlessly. There are some seriously wicked jokes and ideas thrown in, and I gotta say, even though there were a few too many gremlins, I for one will get rid of the googly-eyed one who eats up too much of the running time, the gags are pretty good. The electricity gremlin has a nice payoff, I kinda like the gremlin that talks, even though it's Tony Randall doing a really fakey English accent, and I can't help but chuckle at the Phantom of the Opera gremlin, even though it's the most random thing ever. The weirdest of all, though, is the lady gremlin, because I, for one, thought that the gremlins were all just asexual and didn't really have a gender. I mean, they replicate by getting wet, so I don't know. I mean, I'm sure Joe Dante got the reference, but I don't think anybody else in the theater did. Still, she has great stinger where she intends to marry Robert Picardo's character, who kind of seems down with the idea and oddly horny for this gremlin. It's weird for a kid's movie. And according to the Consequence of Sound article, it was some improv by Picardo, which he never expected to end up in the movie, because Dante even mocked him for it, saying it was all too kinky. But of course, they put it in there. Sadly, the film seemed to really hurt Dante's career. His follow-up, Matinee, starring John Goodman, has been a cult hit, but was not a box office success, and his next movie, Small Soldiers, was an all-out disaster, despite it being a big-budget reteam with Steven Spielberg via his new company, DreamWorks, trying to recapture the magic of the original Gremlins via cutting-edge CGI. Things would go even worse for Dante in the 2000s when he signed on to do Looney Tunes back in action, with him complaining about his creative freedom being stifled at every turn, later calling his time on the project the longest year and a half of his life. For whatever reason, it seemed to spell the end of his career as a mainstream director, at least as far as features go. He's still in demand, though, as a TV director, helming episodes of Hawaii Five-O, Salem, The New MacGyver, and Legends of Tomorrow, but his feature output has been pretty small-scale, with The Hole and Burying the X his most prominent films, although he has a couple in the pipeline that sound pretty promising. It's really puzzling that he hasn't been able to fully bounce back, despite the fact that many, many, many directors have had worse flops, and even his flops are pretty well-regarded. Dante seems more than capable of stepping back into the limelight, maybe with even another Gremlins movie. And if you're going to do one, I mean, it's got to be Joe Dante. His co-stars Zach Galligan and Phoebe Cates also went on to pretty low-key careers following the movie's release, although Cates definitely decided to focus on her family with actor Kevin Kline and is pretty much retired, although she recently reprised her character from Gremlins in the video game Lego Dimensions, so maybe she'd be game for a return to the big screen. Let's hope so, because what the world needs now are Gremlins. For his part, Dante seems pleased with the film, recently telling Consequence of Sound that it was the one movie of his that he could look back at and lay claim to everything from it. It was Dante without a filter, or as Zach Galligan also called it in the same article, Dante Unchained. Fans originally seemed to hate it, but as the film now celebrates its 30th anniversary, they've come around. While not as much of a classic as the original, people now seem to see it for what it is, a truly unique sequel that's absolutely original and uncompromised. For Joe Blow Whore, I'm Chris Bumbray.